It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the fire, Mr. Gang, the government for hire in a combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. That's right, Dr. Bones is back in the dark heart of the city, the city of South Florida, I guess it's all one city now for Lauderdale, Miami, West Palm Beach, all that, but we have just come from the wilds of southern Utah, the Great Basin National Park, the Mount Zion Places where we saw dinosaur tracks, of all things. I know, right in the middle of the city. That's right. And St. George. And the wild. That was really pretty, the, by I the way. I really did that like was, that. that. That was a was cool place. A beautiful part of the country. And, of course, the wildest place of all, Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> I tried to avoid that wild stuff as much <laughs> as possible. <laughs> yes, yes. I spent the entire... We were working. The, the entire time on blinders here. Yes. yes, plus we were working, <laughs> and there was have, nothing but guys there. And I only have like, eyes for you anyhow. Oh, you're sweet. I know. Literally, what, 0.5% of the entire population in the SHOT Show, people visiting and working the booth? That's right. Maybe 0.5% were women? That's Maybe. Exactly right. That I'll, could be an exaggeration. The SHOT Show is a world-famous <sighs> firearm show, and sure enough, you got a lot of uh, ex-veterans, you got law enforcement, you got a lot of folks there we did see... And speak to you a number of, of female I'll tell you what it was. It was attendees. guys, guys, guys. Well, we made it back alive we anyhow. So, <laughs> welcome to Even- the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, friends and neighbors. A lagoon of laconic loyalty in a libertine world. I just want to say one more thing. Go, oh, you do what? Our plane in Salt Lake City had to be de-iced. Yes, indeed. It was cold. It got colder after we left. We actually were sort of lucky to leave that we day. We got really The well, next day. Well, we got lucky when we arrived because we drove from Salt Lake City to Vegas on Saturday and Sunday. And that other vortex, Blizzard, came through Salt Lake City right. area on Monday. So we were already in Vegas. Sub-zero. And then when we left... We left on Monday, 
And the next day was when that Arctic was coming through, which is this week. It's been blowing through. Crazy, the, baby. The poor country's been freezing to death. And we are Literally, here. there are people who have been... Yeah, who have frozen to there death. There was an 18-year-old who, who died on a campus. Oh, my god. college gosh. campus. That is terrible. I don't know all the details, but it was a young man, 18 years old. You know what happened? Can you imagine calling Probably his parents drunk. and saying, sorry, your kid froze to death. How do you explain that? That is... So sad. That is horrible. But you oh know what gosh. happens with with this kind of situation? Oof. A lot of people will drink alcohol because alcohol has, you know, sort of okay, burns eight, a little going 18. down. He's, he's 18, he's yes. He's not drinking to he's get in warm. College. He's, he's in college. He's drunk. drinking to get drunk. <laughs> well, he got drunk. Have a party. <laughs> well, he got drunk, and sure enough, he sort of... I'm sure he said, I'll so, be fine walking back. Yep, and then he just sat down. He probably down. had some sober friends that said, no, no, you need to stay here. It's too cold outside. And, and he just probably said, no, no, it's good. Your alcohol level disrupts your judgment. That's true. And alcohol actually increases the loss of heat from your body by so expanding blood vessels. Yeah. So absolutely, oh, guys, so you see somebody who is freezing to death, do not give them a shot of alcohol. That is bad news. Well, hey, I am Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And this lovely thing is... I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. I'm very far from the microphone Sorry. at the present time. What's going on? Come on I over. Have, I have somebody who wants a special kit for panic rooms. Oh, okay. Well, yes. you know, that is something that makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. Actually, a panic room these days... I'll tell you, there's a lot of things to panic about in the world today. But right now, what you're listening to <laughs> is the voice of reason. We are the dynamic duo. We are the medical matrimony. We are the prodigious pair. And we are here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Well, we're going to be doing a lot of eight-hour classes this year. We're going to be traveling the country. We're going to start off in our home state of Florida uh, in Tampa on March 9th is going to be our first class. The following week in Jacksonville, all the way up north, March 16th. And all these are Saturdays, by the way. Then back at our home warehouse, March 23rd. And so... If you are in Florida, you have three options to learn a lot about survival medicine. We're going to be talking about all sorts of stuff. We'll be doing suturing, stapling classes. We'll be talking about how to stop the bleed. We'll be talking about how to deal with infections, talk about antibiotics, and all sorts of stuff that you're going to need to know about if you're going to be the medically responsible person in times of trouble. Now, we're also going to, we're going to take a little break then, and then be back. Well, actually, now be back. We'll be traveling to Atlanta, Georgia. That's going to be April 20th. Is that a Saturday? or a, Yes, that's, that's a, a Saturday. Saturday. That's a Saturday. And then up in Tennessee, in near Knoxville, in between Knoxville and Gatlinburg, where we have a part-time home, uh, we'll be there in on May 4th, and that is a Sunday. So Sunday, May 4th, and uh, uh, in Kodak, Tennessee, April 20th, Saturday in Atlanta. And by the way, in between those two, you can see us in Asheville, North Carolina, at the Mother Earth News Fair, where we're going to be 
showing our wares. We won't be doing a <laughs> big class, but we will be showing our wares. And we hope that you'll come see us and get some great homesteading information. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident <laughs> with a prurient polar bear? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract nor provider-patient relationship exists nor is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when modern medicine has run out of gas, you might become a thing of the past if a disaster occurs. You know what? You might end up off the grid as the highest medical asset left to your family in times of trouble. If that happens, can you pick up the flag and lead the charge? Well, make no mistake, you got to show the world that you got more sense than the good Lord gave a box of bunny rabbits and get some training, get some education out there. And while you're at it, how about some supplies and a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. I, I can't think of a better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster, make your home, your workplace, school, church safer, and they're designed by an honest-to-gosh medical doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, cost with anybody else's stuff, and you'll agree with our booth visitors at the SHOT Show that our kits are what you should have in your medical storage. Want more proof? Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and service. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us. Boy, if you haven't figured that out by now, <laughs> you have not been listening. So give us a call, Paul. Why not connect with the geezer and the goddess? The geezer and the goddess. It's easy. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Please check out our Facebook group, Survival Medicine, DR Bones, and Nurse Amy. And of course, a one-stop shopping is the Facebook Doom and Bloom page also. And we have a YouTube channel, DR Bones, Nurse Amy. But if you forget all that, folks, the top of doomandbloom.net has an icon for you to push for all of those and much, much more. That's <laughs> right. Just go to the upper right of the main page at doomandbloom.net and you'll find our RSS feed. You have all these other things that you can connect with us on absolutely right on top of the main page. And did I mention you can find some of our great articles in magazines like Backwoods Home, American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge, so many different places. And here's one last shameless plug, last one I promise, and that is for our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings. And that is a detailed look into the fish and bird antibiotics that we've been writing about for so very long and the infections they're helpful to cure or to prevent. It's about 300 pages long, concentrates on antibiotics available to the average guy and the diseases those antibiotics cure. 
all the stuff that I've been writing about all these years, I'm convinced in wise hands, they'll save some lives that otherwise wouldn't survive times of trouble. I can confidently say you haven't read a book like this from anybody else that's a medical professional. This is not stuff you learn at cert class or even from books like Where There Is No Doctor. So learn about diseases like bacteria, all sorts of common diseases, diseases that are common now, diseases that will be common if times of trouble come upon us. There are individual antibiotics to treat them, the diseases each one treats, the dosing, side effects, allergies, pregnancy considerations, all sorts of stuff, all kinds of surprising information about expiration dates, how to establish a sick room, dealing with wound infections, open wound care, and comprehensive supplies for the effective medic. If you want to be prepared for disasters, you're going to want Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, the layman's guide to available antibiotics in austere settings in your survival library. Remember, our books are meant for situations where there is not a functioning modern medical system. If there is, get to a certified medical professional ASAP. What's the matter with you? (laughs) Hey, you may think that preparedness is purely an American passion, but there are folks from all over the world that contact us daily, really, to ask questions or to tell us about their medical preps. There are a lot like Americans in in certain parts of the country, places like Chicago, New Metropolitan New York, and other wastelands for preppers, in that the majority of the neighbors of these folks all over the world think they're a little bit off their rocker, not realizing that it's the majority that they themselves are a little kooky for not preparing for the disasters that happen in everyday life. Now, one of these is our good friend Tom from Germany, who volunteers with the first responder team. I had the opportunity to ask Tom a few questions, and one of them was, are there many others in your area who do the same thing as he does? In other words, have an actual medical team that's available for times of trouble, just like some small towns have have volunteer fire departments here. Well, he said, and I'm quoting, volunteer emergency services have a long tradition in Germany. This is especially true for fire services. There are more than one million voluntary firemen in Germany, and that is sort of weird because the entire population is 80 million. That means one in 80 people in Germany is a volunteer fireman. That is amazing. How about that? Well, I guess you got to do what you got to do. My dad was a volunteer fireman. In uh, Georgia? Yep. Wow, no kidding. Sure was. Well, there you go. Well, he says that, or Tom says that volunteering in medical units such as mine is not as prevalent as volunteering in fire services, but still relatively common. In the past, every German man over 18 years was expected to do some kind of duty, either in the military or in a civilian protection unit, which led to the widespread of such organizations. A lot of these men stayed voluntarily in their local unit even after their duty was done. A few years ago, this duty was abolished. Uh Uh-oh. And since then, it has become increasingly difficult for us to find volunteers. How about that? Luckily, at least in rural areas with more traditional values, a lot of people still consider it their moral responsibility to volunteer in some kind of emergency service. I wish more people around here had some moral responsibility. Imagine a nation in which every person that once they reach the age of 18 had to spend some time in some kind of civil protection unit, fire service, or medical service. Absolutely. We have actually discussed that before. I know um, they do that in Israel. It's more military volunteering, but if we could have like a core of, of people who did some sort of even just volunteer work and taught them 
medical, taught them organization, respecting adults, or I shouldn't say adults, respecting your supervisors, you know, just some adult skills for a year. First of all, that would probably be really great for a resume. Think about it, either applying to college that you've you've participated in this. They love volunteer work. Sure, like being an Eagle Scout. And people could do a lot of really good things in this country for a year as a volunteer. And perhaps, you know, maybe instead of just doing free college, we could give them a stipend and get free volunteer work and just pay them a little bit of money. They get experience. And the country some gets benefit, help, even gets if it's benefit, sure. even if it's going to an old person's home to read books to people, or or visit lonely people, or to check on old folks that are up in these northern areas where it's freezing. Sure, I'm I'm sure some old folks uh, froze to death simply because they weren't with it enough to keep their, themselves warm. Deliver meals. There's Meals on Wheels. I mean, there's so much that young folks could do and make them feel good about themselves. It would give them an extra year of transition between high school and college and I think really turn out some amazing adults and give them first aid training. So wherever they're volunteering, they can either help others or they can help themselves. Sort of a CERT program. Exactly. You know, a community, not like heavy-duty paramedic-type training, but, you know, basics. Exactly. And they would be better community members. So I totally agree. It doesn't have to always be military volunteering, but there should be something, I, a transition. I think it would be an awesome thing for this country. For the and whole country, I think has would done, be great. Certainly uh, has been a wonderful thing for Germany. I also asked Tom what materials he carries when he's called to respond to an emergency. And he said that our unit has a response truck stationed in a garage in the town center, just like fire services. They're notified by pager and smartphone apps or sirens if everything mm-hmm. else fails mm-hmm. and they meet at the garage and respond to the scene he actually sent me a photo of the truck looks sort of like an ambulance um, as mentioned previously it's not designed to transport patients so that's done exclusively by regular emergency service folks but rather to take care of them at the scene sort of pre-hospital care and he said our truck carries the following items uh let's see he separated out into shelter, water, food, and medical. From a shelter standpoint, they have a tent with electric heating, a power generator, truck-mounted light posts, foldable benches and tables, camp beds, and hygiene items. Uh, from a water-food standpoint, they have water containers, canned food, a gas cooker, disposable tableware, isolated containers to keep food hot. From a medical standpoint, they have three medical backpacks, three, each of them with dressing materials, SAM splints, tourniquets, BP cuffs, stethoscopes, bag valve masks, pulse oximeters, blood glucose meters even. Wow. And uh, disinfectants. Two, two uh, artificial defib- um, automatic defibrillators. Artificial. Uh, well, it is, artificial, arti- it is artificial intelligence, right. though. You, you could go. call it that. That's true. And that thing thinks for you. Yes, yes. It decides whether or not to actually give a shock. That's right. So those AEDs are actually... Artificial intelligence. human. <laughs> they have one oxygen bag with a two-liter bottle of compressed oxygen. They have a spine, a spinal board, and they have... Stiff neck collars, which are your your neck collars for stabilization. Since regular EMS covers most cases, we're only dispatched a few times a year for larger events. In the past, calls have included an announced emergency landing at a local airport. In the end, the plane landed without any problems, thank goodness. But that's scary. Right. An evacuation of a train 
house fires, and searching for missing people. Luckily, true mass casualty events are rare. Most of the times we're dispatched purely as a precaution or to provide logistical support. However, we regularly train our medical skills. Our training includes CPR, wound care, immobilization, administering oxygen. However, we're not trained in administering drugs or IVs. That's reserved to regular EMS. And so I had to ask Tom, because his name is Tom. It's mm-hmm. not Heinz or or Fritz or, or anything like that. I asked Tom if he was a native-born German. Mm-hmm. And his answer was yes. But I have visited the U.S. for a school exchange program in Minnesota. A lot of Germans in Minnesota, actually. In the year 2010, I enjoy American podcasts and YouTube channels, especially the ones geared towards preparedness, medical stuff, etc., since these were not popular target uh, topics in Europe. Unfortunately, many people in Europe have, and what a surprise, a wrong image of preppers thinks they are crazy conspiracy theorists. <laughs> well, I can tell you that that is indeed the case. We were interviewed by a no, the, graduate student from the University the of The case Kent, is remember? not that we're crazy. The case is that that's the perception. Yes, yes, there you go. <laughs> He's, I'm, he's I'm, not confirming that yes, preppers right. are crazy. Because he said, in fact, that is yes, the case. That is the case that I am crazy. No, but we can't say that not. about preppers because they are actually the only sane ones there are. And I thank, <laughs> I thank Tom for his input. You know, it's been a good long, you know, I'll tell you, considering all the crazy things that are happening around where Germany is, because near Germany is Russia and the border with Poland. So you have NATO and and Russia sort of smack dab At least they don't live next, other. Der, next to Venezuela. Right. Well, that's a very scary place to be right now. That's also a very scary Oof. place. I tell you, I would be scared to be, live in the Baltic states, places like Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania. They've got With Russia, Russia just looking at them, and licking you, their chops. They're right, licking right. their chops at them right, I read, like they're a juicy steak. I know. I read where <laughs> the Estonian army is uh-huh. is smaller the entire estonian army is smaller than the moscow police force oh no so, so all i have to say is oh. that you know what there is certainly you know we have it's been a while since we've talked about zombie apocalypse uh events things like nuclear ex- radiation exposure mm-hmm. exposure and things like that and net, nuclear detonations, also other kinds of stuff that are the classic things that preparedness folks are concerned about. But with Russia and China getting more aggressive, uh, the risk of nuclear confrontation, well, they're, they're not zero, as a matter of fact. Well, it, it, Russia would really like to be a superpower again. Absolutely. I mean, they're well the on their way. superpower, not just one of them. They like to be the top dog. That's right. And I think that we've had very few in the past few years, we have had very few obstacles <sighs> to these guys doing their thing. You know, they've managed to insinuate right. themselves into the Middle East again. And then they buzz our airspace on multiple occasions, and certainly NATO airspace probably every day. And in fact, the doomsday clock actually put us at about two minutes to midnight. And as they say, the clock is ticking. So let's talk a little bit about nuclear weapons. Oh, my gosh, it's been so long since we've talked about that. Well, most people associate nuclear weapons with what? A bad outcome. I'll say that's pretty reasonable. But few people really know much about the different types of nuclear weapons and their actual effects. So let's talk a little bit about these weapons. And let's concentrate a little bit. We'll concentrate in 
a few minutes on radiation exposure and what to do about it when it happens and, and maybe prevent radiation exposure. Well, most people in the past were concerned about uh, terror events, things like dirty bombs and things like that. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about, let's talk a little bit about that. I'm not going to concentrate on that, but a dirty bomb is not technically a nuclear weapon. It uses conventional explosives, but it has radioactive material in it. And so what it does is it blasts, it causes a blast, and people are hurt by the explosion itself, and it disperses radioactive material over to, well, I don't know, size of maybe a few blocks it would have to be a, a pretty big bomb to be much more than that so usually the effect of the explosion causes more damage and casualties than any radioactive elements now our concept of what an atomic bomb is was actually developed by something called the manhattan project in the 1940s and that is a process to make that bomb that process was called nuclear fission the explosion is caused by a chain reaction that actually splits atomic nuclei, the actual core of an atom. And the result is a wave of intense heat, light, pressure, and energy that equals thousands of tons. What is unbelievable is we're talking about something so, I mean, it's more than microscopic. It's, it's at a level of, of being so tiny that we can't even fathom it. And yet, when this one thing happens, the energy that's released is so huge. Something so tiny can produce so much energy. It's almost impossible to fathom. Think about it. Thousands of tons. Oh, by the way, that's those are known as kilotons of TNT. It's the equivalent. Imagine one stick of TNT. If you hold a stick of TNT in your hand, you're not going to have a hand you or, won't or have much a hand. or much else or much else after it explodes. Right. One one stick of TNT. Imagine thousands of tons of TNT. No, I can't. And, I cannot. And it's not just the explosion itself. I mean, it the explosion is followed by the release of all these radioactive particles in a cloud that resembles a mushroom. If if it's a ground blast. Right. Now, this, these particles are that have all this radioactivity and mixed with dirt and debris and all that stuff, they fall back to Earth, and they do all sorts of terrible things to people. Besides, if you're not killed in the, in the actual explosion itself, it, your crops are contaminated, your animals are contaminated, or your people are contaminated. I mean, and this all happens in the area of detonation, mm -hmm. but then there's prevailing winds that blows these particles to all sorts of different places. This is what happened in Japan. Yes, when in they Fukushima. had the, they didn't have a they didn't have nuclear blasts of mushroom clouds, but they had the meltdowns. Right. And the winds drifted them into the fields and to food. All and all the way to our part of the world too. And they found, you know, areas that had some radioactive iodine in on the west coast things like that sure unbelievable now atomic bombs gave way to hydrogen bombs mm -hmm. hydrogen bombs are best described as what we call new thermonuclear weapons because they generate such extreme heat when they detonate hydrogen bombs are also known as h bombs i think everybody knows that h bombs use a process different process and it's called nuclear fusion and that takes two light nuclei, nuclei core of atoms and forms a heavier one using variations of hydrogen atoms called isotopes. 
This process requires high temperatures and usually involves a fission reaction, like a, an atomic bomb, at, to actually initiate. H-bombs don't just generate power in the kilotons, they can actually re reach levels in the millions of tons of TNT. That's the megatons. Now there Sounds like it would destroy entire countries easily. And, and actually could, depends Very on the easily. size of the country, sure. Another type of thermonuclear weapon is the neutron bomb. That generates much less actual physical energy, kinetic energy, and, and heat damage, but a lot more radiation. Enhanced radiation weapons like the neutron bomb generate a fusion reaction that allows neutrons to escape the weapon with just a limited blast. And that means that you're not flattening the entire country. What you're doing is radiating the people in the entire country and killing them with the, new, with, with the radiation. Now, this was originally designed by the U.S. to counter massive Soviet tank formations, this nuclear neutron bomb, to kill the people that are in the midst of these tanks and uh, other kinds of infrastructure. The infrastructure remains intact, but the human targets wind up getting wiped out due to massive radiation. Mm. And, oh, by the way, what is radiation? Oh, by the way, right. <laughs> what is radiation? <laughs> that horrible <laughs> words. <laughs> well, the definition of radiation is energy that's given off by unstable matter in the form of these high-speed particles. They're called rays, mm -hmm. cosmic rays, gamma rays, alpha rays, beta rays, gamma, all this stuff. So the old that that term rays actually goes back all the way to the year, I think, 1899, by the way cosmic rays. Now, here's some basic chemistry. Now, this is, I'm going to paraphrase this. It was a lot, lot more technical, and this comes directly from the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. All matter, including your body, is composed of atoms. Atoms are made up of various parts. A central core, known as a nucleus, that contains minute particles called protons and neutrons. And it also contains an outer shell. The outer shell contains other particles called electrons. Now, the protons in the core, in the nucleus, have a positive charge. The electrons have a negative charge. So you have the positive charge in the center. You have the, the negative charge is sort of revolving around the, the core, which has a positive charge. And then you have other bodies called neutrons, which are, well, neutral. <laughs> These entities work within the atom to make everything stable. Okay, and what they do is they get rid of excess atomic energy in the form of radioactivity. So radioactivity is excess atomic energy that's let loose by atoms that want to be stable. To be stable, anything that makes them either too negative, too positive, is emitted as radio, essentially radioactivity or, or energy, essentially, that allows a atom to get to a stable state. Mm -hmm. And so all that is what we call radiation. Now there's different kinds of radiation. Radiation is divided into ionizing and non-ionizing. Now daily we're bombarded by radiation from all sorts of non-ionizing sources. The light of the sun, uh, microwaves, uh, radio waves, radar, all, all sorts of other things. And then this type of radiation deposits energy in the materials through which it passes, but it doesn't break any molecular bonds. It doesn't destabilize any atoms. 
the the these atoms mm-hmm. are essentially, you know, it doesn't do you the, any damage. Or I guess being out in the sun, not too much, long, right? Can, or if I put you in a microwave and turned it up for five minutes, it probably would. This but a, in general, it doesn't. You're pretty safe. You're right. I do try to stay away from the microwave while it's cooking, though. Yes. <laughs> That's actually. Sometimes I'm yes. staring in the microwave and I'm thinking. Am, am I getting radiated here? Is right. something escaping? Because you know the the air comes out of the uh-huh. microwave. Yes. The steam comes out of the microwave. So I always wonder if some some something is escaping and zapping my brain. So the, I do try thing. to stay away from the microwave. The amazing thing is that everything, almost everything, emits radiation. A banana emits radiation. Oh, isn't that funny? If you we sleep, have a Geiger counter. Right. You are emitting ra- you're emitting a, a minute amount of radiation. I am. I'm sorry, if I, honey. So if I, I apologize. If I'm next to you, I sleep next to you, I'm getting radiation from you. Yeah, but you're giving thing. me radiation, so. Oh, I'm. I'm Even Steven, buddy. I'm very, very <laughs> stable at this point. I'm at a steady state. <laughs> so anyhow. Wait, wait. My point was I was uh, going to yes. move out of this atmosphere and I was going to talk about this is one of the big issues with all of these um, folks that have a lot of money they are trying to do space programs on their mm-hmm. own is a big, huge problem is protecting the folks that are going to travel to Mars because they're out away from the Earth, which is very protected, yes, from its, a lot of radiation. It's, by its electromagnetic field. Yes, we have a field that's protecting us. Thank goodness, knock on wood. But once you leave that, the spaceship, no matter how thick they make it, and they've got to balance that out with, you know, how gas and whatever they're using to, to get there, energy, fuel, these people are going to have problems with radiation. Exactly. You know, there's a certain amount of time that after that time and that level of, of radiation, they're just going to probably end up with some form of cancer at some point. Well, what happens is... Short-term or long-term. Is the atoms in their body become sort of destabilized. They they shed electrons and they become ionized. And so and and once they're ionized, all sorts of microscopic mayhem damage wind up all kinds winds of up weird occurring. damage. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, in order to achieve stability, these ionized atoms release energy in the form of radiation. So, mm-hmm. if you had a uranium, a hunk of uranium, and and the electrons in the uranium were being shed, that would be ionizing radiation. And it that's how it releases energy and stays as a stable object. Gotcha. Now, with nuclear weapons, there are lots of different types of radiation that are given off. There's alpha, beta, gamma uh, rays. There's neutron radiation. And there's X-rays as well. Now, some of these are emitted in the form of particles. Others are just pure electromagnetic energy. Now, let's talk about, about them for a second. Alpha radiation occurs when an atom undergoes radioactive decay, giving off an alpha particle. Bink! Due to Bink. their bink. Oh, I like yeah, your little sound effects. <laughs> Due to their charge mass, though, alpha particles only travel a few centimeters. They don't even penetrate the outer layer of your skin. Good. So... so uh, you would have to no alphas to be truly damaged by it. You would actually have to in, inhale it or ingest an alpha particle or or be injected with an alpha particle. So, what about people in nudist colonies? 
those people they have a little less protection they than, have a than little, we do from alpha. They actually are okay. Their skin is actually okay, enough so protection enough. All right. from alpha particle. That doesn't mean now their skin is their shield. It doesn't mean they couldn't possibly get a minimal burn. And they certainly shouldn't. In places they shouldn't get burned. Right. In places they shouldn't get burned. Now there is. should be burned in right. certain places. Now there's also beta radi- radiation, and that also takes the form of radioactive particles, and it actually has smaller mass than alpha, alpha particles. And what that allows it to do is to travel further in air than an alpha particle. But the thing is, is it can be stopped by uh, a piece of paper. Can be Good. stopped by your clothing. Okay, so be... now the beta is coming into right. effect for those who wear clothing. Right, exactly. Versus now, those who are not. Right now, beta radiation—if it was, if there was—if there was a lot of it, mm-hmm. and it got onto exposed skin, it was radiating right on, radiating exposed skin. It can actually cause what we call beta burns that actually require some treatment. But the main threat, again, like alpha particles from mm-hmm. ingesting it, may be from crops that are, growing in, that are growing in fallout areas. Radioactive iodine is a beta emitter mm-hmm. for the most part. Now, gamma and X-rays, now unlike alpha and beta, are two types of radiation that don't consist of any particles whatsoever. They are pure electromagnetic energy. Think of... Think of uh, Gamma rays as X rays on steroids. Okay. Basically. Okay. So there, there's X rays, and then there are gamma rays. Gamma radiation. So you don't want to get into a gamma machine. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you want to get a gamma avoid scan. That. A avoid, gamma scan. Avoid gamma scans at all costs. Right. Gamma radiation can travel so far for, through air, uh-huh. and, and that it makes alpha and beta particles look like. Pikers, okay? Gamma radiation, that's what's responsible for most of the damage that's caused to humans by by radiation, at least, after a nuclear explosion. Gamma is what you have to be worried about. That's right. And so gamma uh, ray emitters uh, include things like cesium, cobalt-60, radium-226, and even some uh, iodines, iodine-131, also can emit gamma radiation. Mm -hmm. But Gamma radiation can be blocked by various materials, and we'll talk about that if we have time a little later on in the show. The thickness required for each material, though, depends on its density, and so you've got a number of shielding options and thickness requirements that will allow you to exponentially decrease your exposure to radiation. Lastly, I just want to talk a little bit about neutron radiation. Neutron radiation has very high-speed particles. These are particle uh, radiators, and they have very high penetrating power. Neutron particles travel further in air than any other form of radiation, but they can be blocked by materials that contain hydrogen, like water and concrete. So when neutron particles are absorbed into a stable atom, that's a problem because they make it unstable and more likely to emit radiation. So it's the only type of radioactive particle that can turn other materials radioactive. radioactive. Wow. So it can it can turn your concrete guy, in your house radioactive. Good guys into bad guys. There, gotcha. There you go. Well, although radiation is a major issue after a nuclear blast, you have to understand that most damage from nuclear weapons are really the results of massive amounts of energy that's actually generated by shock waves mm-hmm. and, and heat waves, just like, you know, a... A, a regular bomb would cause. Right. Now, the blast kills people very close to ground zero. If you're on ground zero, there's not, if, if you have somebody that's telling you how to 
survive a, bla a nuclear blast at ground zero, then you've got somebody who is selling you the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay. <laughs> so, no. Not going to happen. That's right. Is that what you're saying? Right. Okay. It, it can cause major trauma much farther away There's uh, because of flying debris, mm -hmm. falling buildings account for casualties. The heat, the heat is so intense, everything close to ground zero will be vaporized. And even at a distance, so many things will be will catch on fire from the extreme heat that you have a lot of casualties due to severe burns, just from, from regular burns without radiation burns. Now, you might think that missile defense systems can protect you, and maybe they could if somebody target, targeted you, your city, with one bomb. Right. You know, that, if they did that, then our missile defense systems actually have a shot at stopping it. Unfortunately, so if somebody whacked us or tried to whack us by launching a 50 megaton bomb, mm -hmm. 50 million tons of TNT or 51,000 kilotons of TNT, we would have a shot of intercepting that in flight. As a single. Right. But a 50 megaton bomb is a rare thing. Actually, the biggest bomb that was ever detonated was 51 megatons, and that was called the Tsar bomb, after the king of Russia was known as the Tsar. Mm -hmm. So they called it the Tsar bomb, and that was detonated in Russia in 1961. Well, if they sent that over, it's possible that we could actually intercept it. However, most nuclear weapons are in the 100 to 150 megaton range, mm -hmm. and... There are lots of them. There are thousands of them. And so you can send 20 of those still uh, 10 times stronger than the bomb that hit Hiroshima mm -hmm. to each city. At least uh, a few countries have the ability to do that. And we would not be able We'd to. We'd be overwhelmed. Even North Korea, if they, if they say Unless they have Unless you're my enemy listening, and then we will shoot them all down. That's right. There you go. No problem. No problem. So the bottom line is even North Korea, I think somebody wrote once that they think North Korea has about 16 nuclear bombs or something like that. They could they could wipe out New York if they really wanted to by just sending all 16 nuclear bombs to New York yes, or but then to there Los Angeles. But then there won't be a North Korea. Then there won't be a North Korea. Then there will not be a North Korea. If they can figure out who sent it. I promise you. If they can figure out who sent it. There will not be a North Korea. Right. The question is, is do you... Attack and there probably won't the be like a human the, being in this country that would say, no, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. We'll all agree to that decision. And so here I am talking about kilotons and megatons and things like that. And so the thing that you need to know is that the impact of a nuclear bomb is dependent on its yield. And that's the measure of the amount of energy produced. And that's why I'm talking about kilotons and megatons and all of this type type of thing. Mm -hmm. So damage from nuclear weapons caused by blast effects, kinetic energy, heat effects, thermal energy, radiation energy, initially and later on by fallout, which are the particles that are in the air that wind up eventually reaching the ground. Right. And also by electromagnetic pulses. And the electromagnetic pulse is basically a disruptor of telecommunications and infrastructure and is one of the other things that preppers are concerned about, either naturally by major solar flares or by, indeed, the detonation of a nuclear bomb. And nuclear, to actually wipe out 
most of the electrical, the, the grid, most of the grid in the United States, mm-hmm. all you have to do is detonate one probably 100 megaton, uh, 100 kiloton, not megaton, kiloton bomb, a, an average nuclear weapon, probably about 200 miles in the up in the atmosphere. Oh, and the that, EMP, and that EMP will, right, exactly. scenario. Exactly. And what happens is, is you get a generally circular pattern of damage, mm-hmm. and that's both from the blast energy, from the heat energy, and also by the EMP energy and radiation pattern too. But there are various factors that can come into play. I mean, the altitude of the explosion, the weather, the wind conditions, you know, may not, if the wind is heading in a certain direction and, and is strong enough, I mean, it's no longer a circular pattern. And, of course, there are nearby geologic features. It's possible that radiation and, and blast particles may be affected by a mountain range, things like that. The U.S. government estimates the distribution of damage for uh, atomic-type bombs to mm-hmm. be about 50% from the shock wave itself, 35% from the heat generated, about 5% from the initial blast radiation, 10% from about fallout, from fallout radiation. I don't have the data in front of me, but it stands to reason that the H-bombs, being so much hotter, would probably cause a higher percentage of thermal damage. And the neutron bombs would cause probably more radiation damage than the standard model that the government is using. Uh, now, the funny thing is that you would think that this would incinerate everybody in, the entire, in an entire major city, But the atom bomb dropped in Hiroshima in 1945, it flattened buildings over about a four-square-mile area and killed about 60,000 people immediately. Terrible, of course. And then it killed another 90,000 to 140,000 people because of burn injuries, uh, uh, blast injuries, Mm -hmm. you know, trauma, radiation exposure, all that stuff. Although this represents a lot of casualties, 150,000, 200,000 fatalities in total, the actual entire population did not perish. At the time of the explosion, there were a good 400,000 people living in Hiroshima, plus about 40,000 Japanese soldiers. So, although pretty bad, let's face it, the, the distance from ground zero, other factors do play a role in a nuclear weapons lethality, as does the power of the bomb itself, and indeed, the there were a lot of people that did survive the atomic bomb explosion in Hiroshima. So you might be surprised by, by the way, the relatively small percentage of deaths from actual fallout. I said that about 10% of the deaths were related to fallout. And and this is why... You need to get out of Dodge. Right. Well, you need to get out of Dodge. (laughs) That is one thing that you need to do. But I want to explain why. Run, run. Why, why, why. Less people died from radiation than you would think. And that can be dictated by something we call the 7-10 rule. 7-10 rule. The 7-10 rule with regards to radiation states that there's a tenfold decrease in radiation for every sevenfold increase in time. So let's assume that at one hour post-detonation, the level of radiation is 1,000 rads per hour. Okay. Okay. We can then extrapolate that at seven hours post-detonation, seven times, Mm -hmm. one hour, the radiation level would drop by a factor of 10. It would drop from 1,000 rads per hour to 100 rads per hour. 
And in our next show, we'll talk about rads and REMS and all the other other things about radiation and radiation sickness. All the juicy details. That's right. Now, it's that was at seven hours. Okay. Now, if you multiply seven by seven, that's 49. Okay. So at 49 hours, slightly more than two days after the detonation, the level drops to one-tenth of that. So you're going from 1,000 rads per hour at one hour post-detonation, 100 rads per hour at seven hours post-detonation. Mm-hmm. At 49 hours, you've got 10 rads per hour. And a little more than two weeks post-detonation, that would be 7 times 7 times 7, that's 343, the level would be only 1 rad per hour. That's still dangerous. It would take actually probably about two years to put you down to 10 millirads or 10 thousandths of a rad per hour, Mm -hmm. which would make, I guess, the area habitable. If not exactly healthy, it would take longer than that to drop to normal levels, as you can imagine. So the truth is you might not think there's anything you can do in a nuclear attack. And if you're ground zero at the moment of detonation, guess what? You're right. But your chances of survival, given some time, some distance, and some protection, might be better than you think. We'll talk about what you can do to increase your chances of survival next week. Hey, you know, we are proud to serve on... Jack Spierko's expert counsel. Jack Spierko is the granddaddy of all survival podcasters. The survival podcast is his baby, and we are really honored to and privileged to be able to answer questions from his listeners, just like we answer questions from our own. And here we have a, a listener who asks us the question of what to do If your EpiPen becomes expired, EpiPens are used for severe allergic reactions and, well, you know what? They are very expensive and in good times or bad times, you might run out of them. So what can you do if you happen to have only an expired EpiPen? Here we go. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Marty who writes, My 12-year-old son is allergic to nuts, and his reactions can be anaphylactic. We always have EpiPens on us, and he self-carries, but they're temperature-sensitive and expire annually. The cost for a prescription is between 250, oh my gosh, and 450, wow, for two pens with our insurance, and we need four sets per year to make sure he's covered in all situations. So the questions are, one, in a situation where we can't get replacement EpiPens, How long are the old ones good for? Do they really expire or lose effectiveness after one year? How long are they good for if they're stored at room temperature? Two, can EpiPens withstand temperature swings? If we leave ours in the car by mistake, we generally had to trash them as they're so sensitive. And three, are there alternatives to Epi? Marty, for those who are hypersensitive to certain allergens like your son, a bee sting or a high pollen count can be life-threatening in the form, indeed, of anaphylactic shock. The treatment for anaphylactic shock is pretty straightforward. It's epinephrine via injection. Once given, epinephrine narrows blood vessels and opens airways in the lungs. And these effects can reverse hives, swelling, severe wheezing, low blood pressure, skin itching, all sorts of stuff. Other methods of delivery, such as oral doses of antihistamines, are generally too slow in their effect to be of much use. You need to have epinephrine by injection. 
Therefore, it just frosts my cookies that a 600% 2016 price hike from the company that makes the EpiPen or markets it actually put the drug out of the financial reach of so many people. And all this for a product that costs about 10 bucks to produce a two-pack with maybe about a dollar or two worth of drug. Well, enough of that. Let's get to your questions. How long do expired EpiPens continue to provide a beneficial effect if stored at room temperature? Do they really expire or lose effectiveness after one year? The answer is no, you might be surprised to know. In May 2017, I wrote an article on a study done by the California Poison Control System in San Diego. They tested 40 unused expired EpiPens and found that all, yes, all of them, retained at least 80% active epinephrine, the main ingredient. This was true even for EpiPens that closed in on the four-year expired mark. The least potent device, as a matter of fact, was found to be at 81% effectiveness 30 months after its expiration dates. Pretty amazing for a liquid medicine. Most of them were actually at 90% or above. So you might want to hold on to those expired EpiPens a little bit longer. You may need to give a second dose, but even the government is reluctant to say not to use them if you have to. Can EpiPens stand temperature swings? Studies show that drugs, especially those in liquid form, stored at 90 degrees lose potency twice as fast as those stored at 50 degrees. So the answer is, well, not so much. Store them in dark, cool, not freezing, dry conditions when they're not in your pocket. Are there alternatives to EpiPens? A number of auto-injectors indeed provide generic epinephrine, but they may be different from the EpiPen in how the mechanisms work. As of 2018, there were three branded products that were available in the U.S., the EpiPen, something called AdrenaClick, A-D-R-E-N-A-C-L-I-C-K, and AuviQ, A-U-V-I hyphen Q. If the auto-injector isn't an option, vials or ampules of epinephrine are available, also by prescription though, for you to pre-mix syringes as needed. 1 to 1,000 epinephrine solution contains 1 milligram of drug per milliliter or cc of solution. For a person weighing 30 kilograms, that's 66 pounds, or greater, give 0.3 to 0.5 milliliters that equals milligrams in this particular case, into the side of the thigh about the level of the bottom of your jeans pocket. Repeat the dose every 5 to 10 minutes, alternating left and right thighs until improvement is noted. One dose is usually sufficient. Remember that epinephrine can cause a fast heartbeat, nervousness, and perhaps a number of other side effects as well. Of course, you want to get the victim to modern medical care if at all possible. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, we'll talk a lot more about radiation and a lot of other interesting topics. See you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.